Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, just a, first a word about our retreats and why um, any of you that have been on most modern retreats, this will be um, quite different and maybe uh, unexpected, the, the structure and the method that we use on retreat. Uh, this is, we started doing retreats as a Sangha in 2013, and I think this is the 14th or 15th retreat we've done. Most of them have been at Juan Dharma Center. Uh, residential retreats, uh, which makes that, that structure and the control that we have in a residential retreat makes um, what we do on retreat a little bit more uh, efficient, if you will. But the, but the structure of the retreat is still the same, whether we're in residence or here uh, in Frenchtown uh, and online. Uh, and the structure is made uh, and, and framed by an eightfold path. And so whether we're on retreat, where we immerse ourselves in the Eightfold Path moment by moment in that setting, we can do so here, too. And so when we leave here tonight, when you're back in your, with your family or friends, or even you, you might find yourself in a, a, maybe the, a work environment for a few minutes, bring the structure that you know into that environment. And that's Dhamma practice. So um, one of the reasons why we don't have silent retreats is the Buddha would never have thought of of leading something uh, in, in silence. There's no opportunity to learn the Dhamma if all we do is engage in some group collective um, silence. Uh, that, there's nothing noble about that type of silence. There's no nobility in that. Noble silence is informed by right speech, which is an aspect of the Eightfold Path. So, and I'm not going to get into what right speech is in, in, in detail, but right speech is, gen- is, is remaining harmless to ourselves and others in everything that comes out of our mouth. And you all understand what that means. So during our retreat, during this weekend, whether we're here uh, in Frenchtown, or you're online, or you're out in the world uh, out of necessity, maintain that structure and be mindful of your of right speech. Uh, and in this way, you're practicing the Dhamma. Again, the Dhamma wasn't meant to only be practiced once a week at class, or once a month at class, or only on retreat, which, by the way, is how most modern Buddhists practice uh, their form of Buddhism, the Buddha teaches a very simple and direct Dhamma that can and must be integrated in each person's life so that that right view becomes the experience of their life, or I should say the developing right view. And in this way, the Dhamma becomes the answer to our own ignorance, which is again by design. So treat this retreat as it's intended. It's not a retreat from the Dhamma. It's simply a retreat from the entanglements of the world for this period of time. Okay, let's... Uh, we're going to get started. Um, and so I'm going to teach uh, one sutta that, that talks about how auspicious this event is for each and every one of us, whether it's your 14th retreat um, or it's your very first. It's your, your beginning uh, study of the Buddhist Dhamma. This is an auspicious day. And for those of us that have taken up the Dhamma, we look back and we probably would admit that this is the most auspicious day of our life, 
Why? Because it's teaching us how to actually have a human life. The Buddha talked about that, um, the auspiciousness of this Dhamma, 2,600 years ago. And this is that sutta known as the Bhattakarata Sutta. The Buddha was staying in Savatthi at Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. This is where he typically spent the rainy season in northern India. There's nothing um, uh, particularly significant about that, although modern Buddhism has placed an emphasis on a three-month retreat as something uh, mandatory in most most lineages. Uh, The only reason the Buddha stayed disentangled from the world for that length of time is because it was the monsoon season in northern India and southern Nepal. It was simply uh, impractical to try to wander around northern India. It wouldn't get very far. So they stayed put and they practiced the Dhamma. At the time, he addressed those monks in attendance. Friends, I will teach you the meaning of an auspicious day. Do not chase after the past or project your thoughts on the future. Not entangled with the world, be mindful only of what is occurring. That's an awakened mind. Free of distraction, well concentrated, develop compassion informed by wisdom. Mindfully engage with what is skillful. What does that mean, mindfully engage with what is skillful? What is skillful as far as what the Buddha is teaching is the Eightfold Path. It's skillful to develop the Eightfold Path. It's unskillful as a Dhamma practitioner to continue to develop any other path if we hope to succeed with an eightfold path. Remember, it's not a one-fold path and it's not a nine or ten or twelve-fold path. It's a very specific, well-defined, and well-taught eightfold path. Mindfully engage with what is skillful. The future is uncertain and death occurs equally for all. Again, that's an admonition from the Buddha from 2,600 years ago reminding us of this auspicious day. This is our opportunity to awaken. And that opportunity isn't always present. At some point, that opportunity ends for every human being. Those who remain mindfully engaged with life as life occurs throughout the day have had a truly auspicious day. That's the whole purpose of the Eightfold Path. To remain mindfully mindfully aware of life as life occurs in a dispassionate, impersonal way. And that the Buddha doesn't leave us with with that instruction. And he never does. He always tells us, where we're going, and then he tells us how to get there. And how does, how does one avoid chasing after the past? One does not get carried away with the delight that in the past I had such a form, or a body, in the past I had such a feeling, in the past I had such a perception, in the past I had such a fabrication, in the past I had such a consciousness. This is called not chasing after the past. Excuse me. Why does the Buddha start this teaching out on an auspicious day with that? reminding us to don't chase after the past. Why? Because most people during his time and in most of modern Buddhism, we overemphasize this some kind of understanding that can be developed by focusing on past occurrences. The past is the past. The past isn't occurring right now, except that which which we choose to drag into the present, which is never the whole past, is it? It can't be. Human beings aren't possible to recreate a past moment in its entire meaning in this moment. It's always a fragment rooted by, rooted in conditioned thinking. There's no value in it. The Buddha tell, begins this sutta with let go of the past. And of course, we're not going to, if we do this, we're not going to also dive into 
or place any meaning on remembrances of past lives. That is only a distraction to what the Buddha teaches. The Buddha teaches we have one human life to focus on, and that's this one. And any focus on anything outside of this human life will obviate the Dhamma, it will will end Dhamma practice. Of course, if we find ourselves doing that, what do we do? We take a breath, unite our mind and our body, and continue with with an authentic Dhamma practice. And how does one not project their thoughts onto the future? One does not get carried away with the delight that in the future I might have such a form, in the future I might have such a feeling, in the future I might have such a perception, in the future I might have such a fabrication, in the future I might have such a consciousness. This is called not projecting thoughts onto the future, including the thought that in the future I might find salvation if I act in a certain way in this life. Because what have you just done? You've made a conscious decision to not live this life, to obviate, to negate this life in favor of a future life. And there's no guarantee of that future life, is there? In fact, the Buddha says that is the most foolish thought any human being can have because of that specific reason. We've just lost the ability to be mindfully engaged with this life as life occurs. Instead, our engagement with this life is in preparation for a better life. Does everybody understand why we're losing this life by doing that? If you don't, please say no, you don't understand it. Online too. That's the whole purpose of the Buddhist Dhamma, isn't it? To be mindfully engaged with life as life occurs. Why don't we just do that naturally? Why aren't we born into this human life and we simply stay present with that life? What the hell is wrong with human beings that we can't do that? It's because most human beings, including Siddhartha Gautama, the man who would become a Buddha, are born ignorant of the reality of human life as described as Four Noble Truths. And so as we developed an understanding of Four Noble Truths through the fourth truth, the truth of the Eightfold Path, we develop an understanding of what it means to be a human being in this moment. Because for human beings, there is no life outside of this moment. Or maybe a more accurate way of saying that is there is no awareness of life without awareness of me in this moment. But it's a very impersonal me as the Dhamma practice teaches us. And how does one become entangled with the world? An uninstructed, ordinary person, those of us before Dhamma practice, lacking understanding of the Dhamma, sees form as the self or the self as possessing form. We self-identify with this thing that everybody has. And there's nothing personal about this form, is it? Save for the way that I view it. Which is the greatest form on planet Earth, because I'm in it. I'm in trouble if I think that way. Confused, they see feeling as self or the self as possessing feeling. This is my feeling. How do you feel today? We place such emphasis. In fact, we just, most of us describe our entire life based on fleeting feelings that are rooted in ignorance of the way reality really forms. In other words, the feeling is a fabrication. The feeling doesn't accurately describe what's occurring in my life. The feeling describes my ignorance of life. Because if I'm agitated or distracted in any way, it's because I don't understand who and what I am in relation to the world around me. Confused, they see feeling a self or the self as possessing feeling. Confused, 
they see their perceptions as self or the self as possessing perceptions. It's much like that, that uh, saying by Camus, I think. No. Descartes, that's how you say it. I think, therefore I am. That's the greatest fallacy ever promoted by mankind. Because if that thinking is rooted in ignorance, I think, therefore I'm ignorant, is the only thing that can be concluded from that statement, is there? When our thinking is in line with the reality of four noble truths, then we're accurately describing a self. And what is that self? That self is simply an impersonal reference point to what's occurring. <coughs> Confused, they see their fabrications as self or their self as, as their fabrications. And any way that I view myself that is rooted in a fabrication, a confused view of self, is going to cause stress and suffering simply because it's a fabrication. It's not based in reality. Confused, they see their consciousness as their self or their self as their consciousness. And every human being, again, does that. We think the way we think about ourselves because it's the way we think. And unless, unless something is introduced to change the way we think, we don't even have the ability to recognize that our thinking is not based in reality. We'll simply go on moment after moment reinforcing that fabricated view. But once an eightfold path is introduced to interrupt that confused conditioned thinking rooted in fabrication, then there is the opportunity to change our thinking and change our relationship between ourselves and the world around us and then develop what the Buddha teaches as an awakened quality of mind. Calm and peace, no matter what's occurring in the world. Excuse me. Let me read that again, just to put it back into context. Confused, they see their fabrications as self, or their self as their fabrications. Confused, they see their consciousness as self, or their self as their consciousness. This is what is meant by becoming entangled with the world. So we all can understand that. But we can also understand this. And how is one not entangled with the world? A follower of the Dhamma, who is well-versed and well-trained in the Dhamma, does not see form as self or the self as possessing form. For those of us in the beginning of Dhamma practice, that sounds like pure nonsense. How can I not see myself as this? But that's only because that's the only view you've ever cultivated in this life. The Buddha gives us a way of cultivating an accurate view of self that is easily then engaged with and established as the reality of who I am. And how do we do it? By simply seeing that reality through the Eightfold Path. And that's what this says. With right view established, we do not, they do not see the feeling as the self or the self as possessing feelings. Imagine the liberation of being free from our own feelings from not describing our moment-by-moment life based on how we feel, but based solely on our understanding of what's occurring. That's the radical acceptance of human life that Siddhartha Gautama realized and taught us then and teaches us today. With right view established, they do not see perceptions as self or the self as possessing perceptions. With right view established, they do not see fabrications as self or the self as possessing fabrications. With right view established, they do not see consciousness as the self or the self as possessing consciousness. This is called not being entangled in the world. One of my... (coughs) Excuse me. 
what am I describing here as form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness? Anyone? Five clinging aggregates. Which is the Buddhist description for the ongoing personal experience of suffering. Five clinging aggregates. Form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and ongoing consciousness. With a quiet mind, just an initial quiet mind, and we look at those five aggregates, realize that that's, yes, that's what we do. We cling these impersonal aggregates together in a personal way and use them, this fabricated view of self, to describe a self to the world. And most importantly, this fabricated self to ourselves. We literally are the magicians playing this magic trick on ourselves. But the great liberation in that understanding is, yes, but we can stop playing magic on ourselves. We can stop tricking ourselves by developing concentration so that we can see the trick, the fabrication, and through refined mindfulness, develop appropriate mindfulness. A view of reality that is rooted in right view. How do we do that? To develop an auspicious day, the Buddha reminds us, remain present with your life as your life occurs. And we do that by, by seeing life in an impersonal, dispassionate way. It's the only way to remain present with life as life occurs. And in so doing, we do not chase the past or project our thoughts onto the future. We remain free of entanglements with the world and mindful of what is occurring. The Buddha then says, be mindful of impermanence and uncertainty. Uncertainty is a component of, a component of, uncert- of impermanence. Sorry about that. Those that do so will have a truly auspicious day. Let me read it again. Be mindful of impermanence and uncertainty. Those that do so will have an auspicious day. So says this peaceful series. That's the Bhattacarata Sutta. And, and so that type of established mindfulness, this auspiciousness that we create in our own life, is the essence of what we will be developing this weekend. Please. What's a synonym for auspicious? Oh, a most significant point of our life. And it's also, it contains contains an aspect of in the moment vision, meaning this moment is leading to another even more significant moment if we recognize it and carpe diem, seize the day, seize the moment. Well, a great question. Thank you for asking. So each day, living within the Dhamma and the heart with it is auspicious. Yes. That, what David just said, is, is really the point of this. We can, we can maintain this auspiciousness of each and every moment by maintaining a simple and effective Dhamma practice. And again, to many of us, especially in the beginning, this seems like maybe an impossible task or not even a, an understandable path but we're all doing it. And it's something that a human being, an awakened human being taught 2,600 years ago that is still present here in this room. That is one of the most remarkable developments of my lifetime. Um, that this is still extant today. Um, so, leading up to this, we're now going to start, um, I'm going to start teaching and our other teachers will continue through the weekend. The Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana Sutta is the Buddha's teaching of establishing the four foundations of mindfulness, and we'll learn what that is throughout the weekend, as the basis for our first arjana practice, jhana meditation, 
And then how to apply that meditation, this is taught in this entire sutta, how to take that concentration developed in jhana meditation and apply it to an authentic and effective dharma practice. All right, let's just get to it. Um, so I'm just going to introduce uh, the first foundation of mindfulness, just to, um, just to lead to our, our last meditation, our second meditation session, and give it some context within the framework of this weekend. And then we're going to have a brief discussion about that, and we'll, we'll call, it, call it an evening. I think that's a, it'll be a good start for our weekend. Moment to come back. Jane, you okay? Yeah. Okay. Take, take your time, because we're going to give you the time you need to come back. You need some water? No, I'm good, Dad. I do. Ah, no, another great question. Uh, another gold star. Uh, dispassion is, you could say, is the counter to passion. Passion for, uh, and I know this isn't a phrase you, you quite understand yet, but passion for continued eye-making. And that eye-making is would be continuing to establish itself without the right information, without understanding four noble truths. So where compassion is something that is a common human characteristic, that can even create problems when we're, we're being compassionate um, without dispassion, with, with, with taking, this, taking ourselves too seriously in the world as, as saviors, rather than marrying that compassion with the wisdom of understanding rooted in dispassion for establishing me in a moment. That might be a little bit, com- little bit confusing, but you'll understand that. Uh, as we move forward. But does that make any sense to you? It does, yeah. Yeah. It really is. It, it, the, um, we, uh, in Dhamma practice, by necessity, we use a lot of terms that are at, at, at first familiar, un- unfamiliar, but they're necessary to start forming the foundation for all of us uh, for this broader understanding of what we're, what we're doing here, is developing this. So. Um, the first section of the Satipatthana Sutta the four foundations of mindfulness. This is rather brief, and again, it will lead to our, our second meditation session. So, um, as I teach this, just relate it to what we're going to do, be doing in, in meditation in just a few moments. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Kama Sadama, where he addressed those assembled. Friends, there are four foundations, I'm sorry, there, friends, there are four frames of reference, four foundations of mindfulness, that are required for the purification of all beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and regret, for the disappearance of pain and distress, and for establishing the right method of practice, and for complete unbinding. What are these four? So again, I'm going to read that again, and while I'm reading it, be mindful of the auspiciousness and the profundity of what the Buddha is saying. In this, in this very brief introduction, on one occasion, 
The Buddha was in Kamasadama, where he addressed those assembled. Friends, there are four frames of reference, four foundations of mindfulness that are required for the purification of all beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and regret, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for establishing the right method as opposed to a wrong method, the right method of practice, and for complete unbinding. And that's in reference for complete unbinding from wrong views, rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. What are these four? I'm just going to read the first one. Being mindful of the breath in the body, determined and alert while abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. And so Matt's going to pick this up tomorrow and probably reference this again. What that means in our meditation practice is very simple and very direct. It means in jhana meditation, all of us come to our meditation practice after a long day or the beginning of a long day. What are we doing initially? We're leaving the world behind in both a metaphoric and a practical way. And by this simple method of closing our eyes and being mindful of a breath in the body, I'm emphasizing it for emphasis, the in-breath and the out-breath, in that moment that I'm mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, my mind is united in its body. And in that moment, I am experiencing my life as my life occurs. And only in that moment. In that moment, I am well concentrated. For most of us, in the next moment, I wonder what time I can pick up my new car tomorrow. I wonder why she looked at me like that. I wonder why my dog is more... And we remind ourselves, wait a minute, this is a gentle practice, and the only thing I need to do in this practice is to be mindful of the distraction of my feelings and thoughts and return my mindfulness to my breath. I now have established the first foundation of mindfulness. In that foundation, in that initial establishment of mindfulness and concentration, rests the entire Dhamma practice. It is built upon with the next three foundations of mindfulness that Matt will teach us tomorrow, and then is brought to the broader foundation of an Eightfold Path. In other words, there can be no concentration without jhana practice and there can be no refined mindfulness. When I use the term refined mindfulness, I'm defining mindfulness within the framework of the Buddha's Dhamma exclusive of the common and modern applications of mindfulness, which is really, you must be mindful of everything. Well, if we could be mindful of everything, we would be well concentrated and we wouldn't need this practice. That aspect of modern mindfulness, to be mindful of everything as it occurs, simply leads to a constant grasping after mindfulness without the foundation of concentration and will always prove to be simply more distraction. The Buddha realized this 2,600 years ago, and so he gave us jhana meditation as the method of meditation that we use. That jhana meditation is established again in these four, foundation of mindful, four foundations of mindfulness and is then applied to the rest of Dhamma practice. So that's my talk for tonight. 
Um, so I'd like to go around the room um, uh, briefly. And there, there's quite a few of us on retreat here. Uh, and I want to hear everyone, um, whatever you have to say, but let's keep our comments brief. To, you know, just be mindful of two or three or four minutes. Uh, and let's go online first. Um, can I remember who was first? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Matt reminded me. I usually do this, give the talk, and then we, we go to discussion, but we're going to meditate for another 15 minutes. Thank you, Matt. Talk about a well-concentrated mind. Huh? <laughs> so we'll meditate for 15 minutes, and then we will get into our, our discussion. So again, now is the time to meditate. With eyes closed and breathing through your nose, now is the time to set mindfulness on the breath in the body and do jhana. Find your relaxed meditation posture, holding your back straight but not stiff, your ears aligned with your shoulders, your nose aligned with your navel, and holding yourself softly, gently, lovingly. Allow yourselves to settle into this room, settle onto your seats, settle into your bodies, and settle into your minds. Notice the sensation of breathing in your body. Become mindful of your inhalation and your exhalation, your in-breath and your out-breath. While remaining mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, notice that feelings arise and thoughts are flowing. We are sensitive and conscious beings. Feelings arise and thoughts flow. The purpose of meditation is to increase concentration and not be distracted by the arising and passing away of feelings and thoughts. Notice the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. When you find that you're caught up in your thinking, simply acknowledge the distraction and return mindfulness to your breathing. Relaxing your thoughts, remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. And we'll continue to meditate for 15 minutes with callbacks every five minutes.
Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath and your body. Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath and your body. 
and we'll continue to meditate for five more minutes. <coughs> Take a moment to notice the quality of your mind. Be at peace with your mind. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes.
So I, I was slightly distracted during this meditation. I was thinking about um, the, the pure ease of beginning this Dhamma practice, meaning this, we just did it. We, we, we began our Dhamma practice just this way, and it continues just that way. Trijana, through concentration. Uh, I was once part of a Tibetan lineage um, before I took my vows in a different Tibetan lineage. Uh, they taught that Dhamma practice begins after 108,000 vows. Then you can begin. And I was eager to be a part of that lineage. And I think I got up to about seven vows in real life. Uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't for me. Let me try something different. This is much easier, much more direct. And it gives us a direct experience of uniting our minds and our bodies. So as we go around and, and discuss that, uh, I'd like to hear uh, you know, what your experience is and is ongoing with doing just that and how you find uh, this simple and direct method of deepening concentration interrupts that ongoing thinking, ongoing consciousness that would otherwise distract us away from jhana practice. Uh, This is this simple and effective method when part of an Eightfold Path is remarkably (laughs) effective in developing concentration, but it can't be done alone. In other words, the Buddha didn't teach just this, just, just meditation. Uh, he taught meditation as one factor. So meditation supports an entire eightfold path, but it begins here. So let's go around the room first. Uh, let me go around online. Um, Steve, how are you? Hi, I'm Tulum Gosev from Alaska. <clears throat> I have a question. Please. So, when uh, <clears throat> we're talking about uh, knowledge destruction. Uh, you mean just simply knowledge destruction and drop it and go back to the press, or you have to knowledge destruction like angry, thinking, uh, uh, emotions, feelings? Um, it, it's it's a great question, Steve. Uh, you've heard me say over and over again um, that the key to Dhamma practice is gentle, being gentle with ourselves and with the Dhamma. And in this way too. So however you find yourself distracted, whether it's on our cushion, with, with great gentleness, we simply remind ourselves to come back to the sensation of breathing. And the reason why I'm saying it that way is if we can easily become frustrated, especially in the beginning of practice, by thinking we're doing the method wrong by having to keep coming back to our breath when we find ourselves caught up in a distracting thought or feeling. And the same is true, excuse me, the same is true off our cushion. Um, So to answer your question, we practice the Dhamma and we practice jhana whenever we find ourselves distracted but it should, not be, it should not itself develop a grasping after. In other words, we don't want to become hypersensitive to it. We simply want to use our deepening concentration to be aware of when we're distracted. And, and the only thing we do at that point we, is not judge ourselves. We simply come back to the sensation of breathing. Because that is jhana practice. It, it, it's acknowledged or understood that our minds are going to be distracted or we wouldn't need a concentration practice in the first place. Such an important question, Steve. Thank you. Kevin, good to see you. How are you? Very good, John. 
Saving, isn't it? Isn't it? Even not not meaning physically life saving, but it's it saves our life. It it it, it brings us back into our lives, and uh, yeah, you just described it. I know you know you have a lot going on in your life. I might not know it all, but you know that's that's when Dharma practice is most effective, isn't it? Isn't it? When you know, when things are like this, it's a, it's the most effective counter to to the stresses that are just inherent in having a human life. Glad you joined us, you Alex. So how are you? Thanks for staying up. Alex is joining hey, us from London. Yeah, um, I'm right. pretty tired. Yeah. Um, but no, I wanted to. I wanted to be here for the start of your retreat. Yeah. Um, Tom and I were planning to fly over for your retreat, yeah. but obviously didn't pan out. But uh, but I want to witness. Yeah, I want to experience how you guys do things. And yeah, just wanted to be here really. Um, uh, so I don't have a lot to say. I'm very tired. It's been a long day, but um, just. For me, uh, this practice gives me uh, reassurance to know that there is a practice to bring me back to uh, a concentrated mind, I guess, because we I forever get distracted. Um, uh, and I find that difficult at times, but it's always good to know there's a place to come to and a way to do it. Um, whether it whether I've mastered it or not, it's just good to know it's there and, you know, I can keep practicing. So it does a lot for me. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. It is. It's a, it's a true refuge in that way. We can always come back to it. Thanks. Uh, let me, let's go around it. Uh, i got to start this way. Start with Brian. Brian, how are you? I'm good. Uh, very cool to be here and see everybody in person. It's yeah. the other side of the camera. Um, <laughs> I, I think Am that, I as tall as you thought I'd be? NBA worthy. Having heard that that first suda whenever I started this five or six months ago, and then hearing it again, and just getting that that clarity of being able to look back and see just how poignant this um, this teaching and these this dhamma is that it's now becoming the default mode where there's not even a thought about the thought going back to the breath. It's just back to the breath. And it's just that that's becoming more and more and more prevalent. Mm -hmm. And and the peace of mind that comes with that is just astounding. Yeah, it is. And and it's just that practical. Thank you, Brian, for for sharing that with us. Uh, It's just that way. And it's so important to talk about. That's why we do have these discussions. The, the recognition and the acknowledgement of, of the individual, my development of the Dhamma is so important for my continuation of the Dhamma. It doesn't do me or Brian or anybody much good to practice something that, you're not, that you don't realize you're practicing. But the framework of the Eightfold Path 
brings that to us immediately. Tom, good to see you tonight. It's nice to see you too. It's very nice to be here and look forward to this. Um, you know, I, I'm also fairly new to this, and um, but what I found with the jhana practice and is the being able to be more present for others who are close to me, and uh, that seems to be a, a tremendous gift. It, it brings so much more meaning to just ordinary relationships, doesn't it? Because and it, and the reason is obvious because we're actually there for it. You know? When we stop expecting ourselves to be different or other people to be different, we simply are there. You know, and, it, and it's it's kind of the the, the you know the, I don't want to call it the secret, but it is the secret to to happiness and fulfillment to be there for what's occurring. You know? How else could it be? Well, thank you, Tom. Jackie, good to see you tonight. Hi, John. Good to be here. I was looking so forward to this retreat, and it's coming at a good—it's coming at a good time for me. Like uh, Dr. Kevin said, um, I've been kind of distracted lately, and I haven't been. My my effort hasn't been as as keen as it has been in the past. And just being here and doing these two <clears throat> meditations tonight, um, I really, I started to see again that when you're sitting and you can see your thoughts come and go and you can recognize them as just thoughts and that's all they are is thoughts and then you can become aware of the quality of your mind at this moment and not want it to be different, not try to get to some happy place, quote unquote. Yep. Um, I realize that that's something that I've been doing. And tonight I realized that that's not the, I just, well, while I was meditating, it just like came to me, this is the quality of your mind right now, and this is what you should be okay with. So just be okay with it. Yeah. And don't cling to having a happier state of mind. That's it. That is it. Again, Becky described the culmination of Dhamma practice, and that is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And in, in, a, in an awakened quality of mind, what that translates into is that we gain the ability to be at peace with with otherwise unpeaceful mind states. We understand that that the human mind responds to the ever-changing nature of human life when it's done in an impersonal way. There's no stress. It's just a present moment awareness, a reference in time to what's occurring. Think about that. Think about the liberation of simply being present with what's occurring right now without me needing myself or the situation to be any different than this. And why is that so profound? Because it can't be any different than it is. I can't be any different in this moment. The world can't be any different in this moment than what's occurring. How could it? It's occurring. I'm occurring. My mindfulness is expressing itself right here and right now. But if I can gain control of my mind, 
then my mindfulness will reflect reality rather than my own ignorance of what's occurring. And again, that's what Betty, Be- Becky described in much more simpler words than I just did. Thank you, Becky. Thank Good you evening, Jane. Good evening. I too am so happy to be here. Um, I'm just reflecting on how important it was for me to develop my meditation first. Yeah because it wasn't until I had a good meditation practice that I could really understand the Buddha's words. It's very important. Yeah, it is. It, and it, it's singularly important because it, when, when our focus is on developing jhana practice first, it ends the distraction that I always had in, in most other modern Buddhist practices was always looking at and grasping after the culmination or the end even though I didn't understand what that was or how to get there. But all that time, I was out of right here, right now, because I was never given a method to do that. And that's jhana meditation. And it does it wonderfully well, doesn't it? Uh, and I, before I get to you, Nina, um, nobody has to say anything, so don't feel pressured to say anything, but we sure love to hear what you have to say about tonight's class and your, uh, sure. your meditation. Good evening, and welcome to our sangha. Thank you. I'm coming somewhat blindly and unplanned, uh, but it feels like a good place to be. Um, I've been working for the past few months on feeling, not feeling feelings in my mind, but feeling them in my body. Mm -hmm. Um, And meditation does that directly. So it feels like I'm in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I would say you are. And just so you know, I I have poor vision. These let me see faces and stuff. I'll put it on. Nice to see. Virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 actually, it, it actually is. You caught me. I'm addicted to Abbott and Costello reruns. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's my Dharma practice. What can I say? Uh, and, and, and so we learn, Nina. I mean, it, you're, you did come in an auspicious time, and your focus is correct. We learn how to treat our feelings in a dispassionate way instead of having our feelings rule our lives, which is how most of human beings live their entire life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is dispassion similar to detachment? Um, no, because that detachment implies that, it's, it, it implies just that, detached from our own lives. This type of well-concentrated and refined mindfulness allows us to be fully immersed, not detached, in our life as, our, as it occurs. And really the only way to do that is from impersonal uh, dispassion. Because anything else is a reaction to what's occurring, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a piling on to what's already present, and we lose it. Yeah, that concept is hard for me. It, it, it's hard for everyone <laughs> at first, because it sounds like annihilation. It, it sounds like we should be grasping after these feelings rather than recognizing it's the feelings that are distracting us from our own lives. But Becky has great insight into this. I, I, I like the word. The word that works best for me is impersonal instead of just passion. But they really are both meaning the same, and you may not be able to identify with the word impersonal right away either. I mean... But you, you don't take things personally. That's dispassion to me. Yeah. It's just not, not taking it personally when something something happens out there that you don't like. 
Yep. It's not happening to you. You just can view it impersonally. And therefore, if all of this is not caught up in it, you can view it with more truth to what's really happening. That's a gold star right there. That's actually, <laughs> really, thank you. The, the, uh, the, 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 the purpose of the Buddha's Dhamma is to recognize uh, self-created, self-imposed stress and suffering known as dukkha in the, in the, in the, in the Pali language, uh, or the Pakrit language that the Buddha spoke. Um, and so dukkha is described in very simple terms, and, it's, and it's, 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 it describes the common human condition. And the Buddha describes it this way, birth is stressful, meaning simply as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be stress. There's nothing personal in that. Birth is stressful. Sickness is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Not getting what is desired is stressful and getting what is undesired is stressful. Now look at what the Buddha is describing. He's really describing an entire human life and the disappointment that comes from these common occurrences. Sickness, aging, death, not getting what we want, always grasping after what we think we need to be happy. It's all stress. The Buddha said, look at it. And then he described that in the terms that we just referenced earlier. He said, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha, are stressful. What are the five clinging aggregates? It's the ongoing personal experience of stress. In other, in other words, it's personalizing the common and ordinary stressors in life, making them personal. See, saying, well, this isn't happening to me. It shouldn't happen to me because, for what? I'm, uh, I shouldn't have normal stressors in my life. I'm a human being. And so ultimately what the Buddha's Dhamma resolves itself in is an understanding of what it means to be a human being. And I haven't come across anything else in my life that teaches me what it means to be a human being. I didn't even know that was what I was looking for, but it was. I didn't know it until I found it. And then I realized, yeah, this is what was missing in the life. This is why I created all the stress and suffering in my life and unfortunately for many others because of my own confusion and grasping. It's just this. I didn't know who the hell I was. Excuse me. Or what I was. And I found out what I was through the Buddha's Dhamma and how he describes a human being. And all that becomes um, part of our Dhamma class. Too. I hope that helps me. Dustin, what do you think? Welcome to our Sangha. Thank you. Um, since I've been working with this meditation, I've realized where my suffering comes from. And the suffering is the attachment to the thoughts and the believing of the feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Exactly. But when I'm around this and in this group, I can understand that concept. But, like you said, most human beings, especially in this world, and are the people who make the rules and the leaders, they believe their thoughts and they believe their feelings. Yep, and look at the problems there. Is it possible to live in this world and live like this. I mean, because when I leave this room, I go into the world where most people believe the illusion. Yeah. And I get pulled back into that and back into my suffering. Called an entanglement with the world. That's what, right? Like, to now, it. if I was to truly be this way and, and accept life as it is and as it's, you know, as it, as it comes, 
wouldn't I look around and everyone would be lunatics? Like, I would ask the Sangha to answer that question. <laughs> Does the world at times feel like they're, it's populated by lunatics? Yes. yes. <laughs> it, it does, because it is. And again, that's not, that's not a, it's not a put-down of anybody or anything in the world. It is the reality of it. And, and, and based on the Dhamma as taught, as described 2,600 years ago, by the way, the conditions during the Buddhist time were almost exactly the same as they are today. In other words, there was still a lot of internal violence and strife and hatred behind tribes, among tribes, it was ongoing, and it's exactly rooted in the same problem today as ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And so this human being, at the age of 35, left his palace grounds, that he called the confining place, and looked out on the world, and saw it just like you described, Dustin. And it so shocked him that he spent the next six years of his life trying to figure out where does all this lunacy come from? Why are people acting this way? And he figured it out. People act this way because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And once he came to that realization, and it's described in many suttas, his mind calmed. And for the next 45 years of his life, he lived within and immersed in that lunacy with a calm and peaceful mind. And he didn't stop there. He taught everyone else interested how to do the same. And those teachings are what we teach here at Cross River Meditation Center. So to answer your question, question. It wasn't quite formed, but I think it's the question. How do I do this in the world? This is how you do it. And it sounds almost ridiculously daunting at first. But it's done with gentleness and um, with a gradual development of concentration and refined mindfulness. It's very rare that it's done alone, but that's the purpose of our Sangha. That's why we have these classes. That, when Matt and I first met, this is what we decided was, was what we wanted in our life and what we thought we could offer the community was just this. And it's worked pretty well, huh, Matt? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we're so um, pleased to have you and everyone else as a, as a part of this. And the only thing I will say is if, if you continue, I can almost guarantee that you'll develop this common, peaceful mind that everybody else is developing. And the only thing I can almost guarantee is I, there's been... Students that have come to me and I thought right off the man, these these they don't two classes and they're going to be teaching classes and I was almost always wrong when I made that assumption. So, uh, but I have seen people that stay with it, and put in what what is described in the Eightfold Path as continuing right effort based on right intention. They develop a calm and peaceful mind rather quickly, and I would say rather quickly meaning within a few years, which isn't a bad deal. Mm-hmm. So, I'm glad you're here, Dustin. Thank you. Laura, welcome to our sangha. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I feel like um, meditation is essential for me, and it's a part of my daily life in maybe short, um, you. you know, I guess short moments, just because it's um, kind of a, I don't know, a survival mechanism for me for, you know, pain or anxiety or depression. Yeah. So it feels really good to be mindful of my breath, and I feel really great in the moment Structured 
Thank you, Lord. I, I mean, that is the right view. You're, you're cultivating this. We all are. You know, and it's up to us how quickly and how thoroughly we cultivate it. But we all start wherever we start. And it's another important aspect of the Dhamma. It's meant to meet every human being interested right where they are. It's, it's not beyond any human being's ability to develop this Dhamma as long as they understand the, the gentle approach that's necessary and the framework of the safehold path. And then there's something else I'll talk about uh, just briefly. Uh, every one of us who, is, who develops the Dhamma does something take, me, called taking true refuge. And I say true refuge because there's that idea of refuge is thrown around modern Buddhism without really much understanding of what it means. And what true refuge, taking refuge in this Dhamma, means just that. We understand that a human being did this. Not some, some supernatural or, or super extraordinary hu- human being, some, somebody who's, uh, whose capabilities are beyond us mere mortals. No. Siddhartha Gautama was a mere mortal who through his own rightly self-awakening, as he describes it, developed this understanding. And so the refuge is, if, a human, if another human being did it, me as a human being can do the same. And if we elevate the Buddha to some godlike uh, being, then that is beyond human capability. Then I need, I need this godlike Buddha to give me awakening, to bestow it on me, rather than develop it ourselves. And that's not what Siddhartha Gautama did. He, he didn't see himself as a savior, and he didn't teach a salvific religion. So we do this ourselves. We do it through our own uh, development of the Eightfold Path. And you're on the right path, um, you know, the other thing the Buddha taught is that, that third refuge of a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. And we're so fortunate to have it here. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that, might, that might sound rather um, self-aggrandizing because I'm sitting in the seat, but I wouldn't be sitting in the seat if it wasn't for you. you know? what, what, what would I be doing here? I'm glad you're here, Laura. Welcome to our Sangha. Uh, I want to go to Mary and then finish with the teachers, if that's okay. Mary, I'm glad you're here tonight. So good yeah, to see you. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I haven't been here in a long time, but uh, always online. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether we have brilliant new teach new students or a brilliant teacher, but there's both. some really good things going on here, <laughs> which is great. And even after doing this for a long time, you can still, you know, struggle with that. What Dustin referred to about you know, living in the real world and, um, you know, having to make a living and having to, you know, and dealing with, um, you know, the cleaning aggregates, et cetera, and creating your own suffering. So I'm really glad to be here. It's um, a good time to interrupt (laughs) some things that are going on for me. Uh, It always is. And um, I appreciate the refuge of the Sangha. So thank you. Thank you, man. So great. You're here tonight. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> what, uh, what what this is what we're talking about is the most practical way to live in the world and, and again touching on what what Dustin said uh, and it's even in, inferred by that um, at at first it seems like how can I do this in the world when the when all these lunatics are loose but what we find and I think everyone who has developed this to just a, a certain point uh, would agree that it's just a better way to live in the world isn't it. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first realized what the Buddha had actually taught. It was one of those, you know, those thunderbolt moments. Um, was that even, even if I'm kidding myself, and even if this Buddha was, a, was really just a, a 
a, a crazy, you know, person from the past. It's just a better way to live. And so that allowed me to, to, to just kind of dive in wholeheartedly because of that, because this is a better way to live. Whether, it, whether it's some uh, ancient teaching from 2,600 years ago or not, really doesn't matter with me. I happen to believe, and I've done a lot of research to, to come to this, I don't, it, it wasn't just comic book learning, I happen to believe that a human being named Siddhartha Gautama actually lived and he actually awakened and his Dhamma is still extant today. But even if, that's, even if I'm kidding myself, the, 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 the incredible improvement in the quality of my life makes that mo- a moot point. And what I've seen in others in, in this room, and even even tonight, in, the, in, in what you three have said, just keeps reinforcing that. It's just a simple and direct way to be mindfully present with my life as life occurs. And I never knew that's a, that was what was missing. I wasn't here. I was always somewhere else. Always somewhere else. And it was always in my head. And this is what the Buddha talks about, establishing myself in some non-physical realm. Well, that non-physical realm might be a future lifetime, but it's also if I'm stuck in my in an imaginary plane of existence right now, such as, you know, I'm, I got to be center field for the New York Yankees, or my life stinks. Or just thinking about the future. Or just think, yeah, mm-hmm. my life is going to be better when, you know, when mm-hmm. I get the next job or I get this. Even if that's practically true, I've lost my mind in the moment, haven't I? I've lost this moment. That moment of even concern about the future when mindfully engaged with is a poignant moment. Even Kevin used the word and he was describing that. Even a, mo- a moment of stress is poignant when you understand it and you're able to stay present with it. Why? Because it's simply your life. And you're not running away from, from all these different aspects of life and only finding one acceptable aspect of life, that whatever that is that we, that we say is happiness. And by the way, that's different for everyone else. Mm-hmm. For about 15 or 18 years of my life, I described happiness as finding the bottom of a vodka bottle and, and a bag of this and a bag of that. Oh, that was my happiness. And it was the only happiness I thought was worth chasing until I found out it wasn't. And now I found that there's no chasing involved in life. There's just resting in the presence of my own mind as a reference point to what's occurring. And then everything is brilliant. Everything is brilliant. Kevin, what do you think? Thank you. Mary. Really nice to be here with all of you. Even though we haven't uh, gone forth to one Dharma Center, it's still a really appropriate time, I think, for the Sangha. We've been talking about this you know, lately and just refocusing, re- you know, sort of reframing uh, our practices. And, uh, this is a foundational teaching. And wonderful time to do that. Um, this, this sangha has you know, done a retreat together a number of times, a lot of us, so it's, uh, it's nice to see some familiar faces and some new ones too, so nice to meet all of you. Um, you know, yeah, this, this will be a, a unique new you know, experience for all of us, I think. Uh, some of us are local here, and maybe it's just shutting the phone off for couple of days and yes. spending this time together. 
taking, taking refuge here. As I said, it's only for a couple of days that I'm not, not carrying golf bags, but uh, it's, it's nice to be uh, to be with all of you, so I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dhamma teacher Kevin. Uh, Kevin will be presenting uh, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, and, he, and he reminds us of something so important. Keep your phones turned off. And every, all the other distractions that are so common in all of our lives, do your best to, to abandon them for just a few days. Because, you know, I, as I say when we're up in Juan, I said, that, you know, leave the, leave the world behind for these few days. Because the world will still be there when you get back. But if you do this, you're going to be quite different when you go back into the world. David. You think about what Dustin asked, can you take this here out into the world? If you really think about what jhana meditation is, it's a fabrication. It's an impermanent thing that you're yeah. doing to separate yourself from the world. But really, really benefit of is when you develop <coughs> to be able to know wholesome from unwholesome and to understand simple willpower that will get weak and wise restraint and the ability to be fully engaged with someone that you in the past would be so diametrically opposed to that's what you'll get out of this. You'll be able to go out that door and have a calm and peaceful mind. And all it takes is a little bit of effort, this Sangha and the Buddhist teachings. And it's, it's not giving things up. It's making decisions about how you want to conduct your life and being fully present. So that's all I have to say. Ah, you said a lot. It's not a bad deal, you know. Thank you, Dhamma teacher. David, David will be presenting Sunday morning. Wrong. <laughs> I was late here um, because I've spent the last two days being at shade tree car mechanic which I've done in the past but it's always been a just a recipe for frustration and rage and <laughs> resentment and you name it you know tools flying around uh, me hurting myself um, and I just spent two days doing some really difficult things that I had never done before. And towards just this afternoon, I was realizing that I was just there. You know, we went, I went from plan A, plan A doesn't work, plan B, plan B doesn't work. Plan C. Plan C works a little bit. Oh, and then it stops. Plan D. And just the, the 
calm and um, the lack of, of self-referential stuff that used to be going on uh, was just amazing. I was just there, sitting in the sunshine, hammering away, you know, running the impact wrench, um, and and really trying every trick that I've ever had, and then some I didn't even know I had, and I was able to do that without being panicked or hurried or resentful or anything. Um, you know, those those feelings would come up briefly, and I'd see them and I'd let them go. Um, and it's just amazing. And, and even the fact that I was running late and that I had to come here and then I had to get some dinner together, even that was done in just utterly relaxed way. Um, and this is, you know, um, this is kind of new for me. Because <laughs> 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 really, this is... For this, most of us. Yeah, for, for and... Um, Again, as, as, as Justin said, how do you take it into the world? You can take it into the world. Yeah. You know, even even the, the world of, of, you know, fighting with inanimate objects. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it does work. Um, it, it allows you to, to be in, in the world and just be there. And, you know, something needs to be done. You're there doing it, so let's do it. And, you know... There's Dharma practice too. That is, and Ram, you know, he says something that's so important. It's, it's, an important aspect of Dharma practice. To, to the Buddha uses these words, to be mindful of what is no longer there. That's what Ram is referring to. What's no longer there is this, is a conflicted, constricted mind. And we're, we, it's important to notice it, and we gain the ability to notice it. Noticing what is no longer present. The ignorance that I used to once harbor to describe myself to the world and myself to myself. Pure liberation. Thank you, my friend. Dhamma teacher Ra will be teaching our... He's, he's the closer. He's the goose gossage of our retreat. And he'll be finishing uh, <laughs> Sunday, uh, Sunday's noon session or whatever it is. Good evening, Matt. Good evening, John. Really happy about everyone coming tonight. And... Uh, and you know, sharing this this room, um, a lot of stuff, a lot of really good stuff came up tonight, um, and so I won't try to get into all of it, but because we have the rest of the weekend for that. Um, but John said something um, earlier about. Um, he said as a consequence of human life there is stress so I think everybody gets that everybody gets that everybody gets that just being alive there is stress so when we sit down on our cushion and we get quiet 
we start to see the habits of our attention. And we start to notice how we either want to fix it, solve it, change it, get rid of it. That's stressful. So this, I, this practice of getting quiet and dispassionately observing the habits of our attention, it starts to change what we do with that. It starts to change this compulsion to fix, solve, change every single thought, word, idea, feeling that comes up. And, you know, when we don't take what comes up personally, and we understand that as a consequence of life there is stress, we can start to let go of that. Let go of analyzing thoughts, analyzing feelings, judging thoughts, judging feelings. All of these kinds of um, agitations. Yeah, all these kinds of agitations. Conditioned actions. Right. So when we start to get quiet and, and start noticing how often we do that, how much of a habit it is to do that to ourselves. We, we understand immediately how the world is so insane. <laughs> so, for the rest of this weekend, we're going to really settle into our minds and settle into our bodies and take the time to become aware of the sensation of breathing in our bodies and understand that as a consequence of having a human life there's stress and we're going to start to see our contribution to that stress we're going to start to see how we contribute to the stress that's just inherent in, in life. The stress that's inherent in life, we can't change it. We can't fix it. We can't solve it. We can't get rid of it. We can understand it. But we can understand it. And what we can start to skillfully develop is a way to interrupt our contribution to it. And, you know, David talked about it, Ron talked about it, we talked about it, you know, the calm that develops through this practice when we're just attending to life as it occurs without needing it to be different is is amazing, is, is, is extremely powerful and, and is what Buddhist practice is.
So I'm psyched all you guys are, are here to, to join this little retreat. Thank you, John. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dalma teacher Matt. That was really brilliant. Really, yeah, brilliant description of what we're doing here. Uh, Dalma teacher Matt will be teaching tomorrow morning. Uh, the initial uh, establishment of the four foundations of mindfulness, uh, which Matt always exemplifies and has for since I met him. Uh, so, um, as we continue with this weekend, maintain this retreat mind, if you will, as best as you can. Uh, if you find yourself entangled in the world, don't judge yourself harshly. Gently, just come back to the Dhamma. Uh, and realize the auspiciousness of what you're doing uh, today over the weekend and, and hopefully for the rest of your lives. Um, a practical matter is uh, we're, we're going to be having lunch and dinner tomorrow as a Sangha, and I encourage you to join us uh, for that and just to, 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 as best as we can, maintain uh, this retreat Sangha. Um, of course, nobody has to ever do anything, uh, including that, but I hope you do join us. Uh, could I get a, a, a head count of who will be going to lunch and dinner with us tomorrow? Just so I'll call the two restaurants and uh, I think it's everybody, right? Uh, I can't do dinner tomorrow. Ah, okay. Uh, so we're going to go to Love and Oven for lunch and uh, uh, Bamboo House for dinner. Uh, so I'll, I'll call both places and just try to, you know. What's that? Mike and Julia. Probably 15, 16. Yeah, I'll send them an email. I, I, again, I thought they'd be here tonight. Maybe they'll be here tomorrow. So, all right, but now I'll just, just to let them know in general how many people will be there. Um, I can't think of anything anything else logistical that we need to talk about. Does anybody... Do you want to ask Dr. Kevin if he's coming? Oh, yeah, Kevin, Dr. Kevin, I mean, if you can join us for dinner or at any time over the weekend, just please feel free to do so. Yeah, I hadn't planned to, but I, it sounds really good. Yeah, well, and, and uh, you know, if Robin or any you know, your kids want to come, bring them along. It's always good to see them all. Um, One thing, John. Yes. Um, did we... Never mind, never mind. I don't want to introduce a, a, another layer. Um, but now it's really awkward. So anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Any chance we can do, Jane and I have been talking, we've been wondering maybe Sunday lunch as well, um, or is that not? Because it starts at 9 for the morning, and Ram, I think yours is the 12. Well, so let, we could do it right, I, don't, I wouldn't want to do it before, but why don't we do it after? I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. If we, could that's... Do it, we could do it after, that'd be fine, or Ram, what do you think of? I can move. Doing like at eleven or 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 to eleven, yeah, either way. Yeah, we were. That was well. Let's see how what the timing is. Okay. Um, what time are we starting on Sunday? Nine thirty, same time. Nine thirty to eleven. I think if we had, I think we should have a little bit of a break. Maybe just walk around yeah, town yeah. or something, mm -hmm. and then then Ron will teach. Um, so you know, we'd probably be done twelve thirty or one o'clock. And uh, sure, I, I'm all for you know going out to lunch. Uh, as a song and concluding it that way. Mm -hmm. um, let's think about that. Maybe uh, for anyone who can make it. If that's for anyone who can thing. make it, well, maybe that the bridge would be a good place to yeah. finish up, and yeah. it, you know, just yeah. be a nice place to finish. We could, you know, kind of 
have our usual group hug right outside. Yeah, yeah I, I get a picture. Great idea. And Matt has another great idea he's working on that he'll maybe talk about this weekend or soon. So, uh, something coming up uh, in another month or so, huh? maybe two. Uh, all right. Um, what a wonderful evening. Thank you all. Thanks, John. You know how easy I'm brought to tears, but it's it just, it's almost overwhelming. Give me a second. It's almost overwhelming to see the, the level of, uh, of real commitment to the Buddhist Dhamma. Uh, and I think it's even, to use that word again, it's even more poignant right now today with what's going on in the world. You, you are all um, remarkable people. You are. Thank you. Thank you we'll finish with metta as we always do. Uh, and those that don't know what this is, this is the Buddha's words on metta, which, which translates to be love and kindness. But what this, uh, I used to call this an intentional meditation. What this intentional meditation describes is the result of Dhamma practice, how we, how we would treat ourselves and each other. The Buddha's words. And again, let's take a moment to be mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. With that unite your mind and your body. And the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for really a wonderful start tonight. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.